0: Hi and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, here we are, episode six, let's do it. Okay, so this episode is going to be on creation, okay, so who created the world and why and what stuff did he create? Now, this episode is going to be kind of a nice brain break, especially if you've just come from the Trinity episode or some of those more sort of theologically dense topics. In this episode, we're just going to consider a few ideas around the origins of the universe and the created world. Now, the first question that we might ask is, why should we discuss creation from a religious perspective? Yeah, like what does religion have to offer that, say, science doesn't? Because this is an objection that you might hear is people saying, well, you know, in the past, in the kind of pre-scientific era, we needed to create stories and myths about the origins of the universe because science wasn't a thing. But now that we've got science, we've explained just about everything we need to know about the origins of the universe, and we no longer have any need for a god to explain it. Okay. Okay. In order to respond to that objection, we first have to consider what science is. Okay, what does it do and what does it not do? What can't it do? So what's science? Okay, science is concerned with the material or the physical world. Okay, understanding what the stuff is around us. How does it work? What's it made of? What does it do? What can we make it do? And these are all really important questions. But we have to remember that science, by definition, cannot and does not answer questions about the non-material world. It can't tell us where matter itself came from or how it came into existence in the first place. It also can't tell us why the material world is here, who put it here and for what purpose. So we can think of it like this. Imagine that you are walking through the park and you find a laptop lying on the ground. Now, you could take that laptop home and spend days and days and days analyzing it, okay, and understanding what the laptop is made of, you know, taking it apart and looking at its different parts, putting it back together and analyzing its software. What does it do? What can I make it do? That's all great. But none of that analysis is going to answer the question of why it was sitting in the park, okay, and who put it there, for what reason, And if you wanted to answer those questions, you would need to use a different method. So it's the same with creation. Okay, science can tell us that we were created and a lot about how, but it can't tell us why and ultimately where we came from. And if we want to answer those questions, we have to use a different method. And that's where philosophy and theology and religion come in. So. Across time and across cultures, people have come up with different kind of philosophies or theories that sort of explain the origins of the universe. So we can think of things like pantheism, okay, which is this belief that creation itself is God, okay? God is the world, the world is God, and the evolution of the world is also the evolution of God. And we see elements of pantheism in religions like Hinduism. And then you've got things like Gnosticism which is this belief that the world is kind of a bad thing. It's like the result of some sort of fall or sin. And so we need to rise above it and sort of get into the spiritual realm to sort of escape the created world. So we see aspects of Gnosticism in things like Buddhism, And then you have deism, which we've touched on in other episodes, which is just the idea that God created the world, but he doesn't care about it. Or materialism, which is the belief that matter has always existed and just happens to have come together in this particular way. Now, many of these philosophies of creation have a grain of truth in them, but ultimately they're kind of missing something. Namely, they don't offer an adequate explanation of why we exist. Okay, they either present creation as though it was something accidental or incidental or random or they present creation as though it was something bad and something that we need to reject or leave behind. And I think instinctively if we look at the world around us, we can see that like yeah, okay, there is definitely bad stuff in the world that we need to detach ourselves from, but there's also so much good in the world. Like it it can't be enough to just say that the world is a bad thing. Okay, so what is the Christian account of creation and how is it different to some of these other philosophies? Well, First of all, one of the things we believe as Christians is that God exists outside of the material world and he created matter. Okay, so we're not pantheists. We don't believe that God is the same thing as the material world. So we see this in the first chapter of the first book of Genesis. The very first line reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is then echoed in the first chapter of John's Gospel, in which he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. So in the beginning, you had God, okay, prior to anything else. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing that we believe is that God made the world deliberately, It wasn't just an accident or something random. Throughout the first chapters of Genesis, we have God deliberately saying, let there be light. Let the waters under the sky be gathered together. Let the dry land appear. Okay, so God is deliberately bringing forth these things. And the third thing we believe is that God's creation is good. Okay, it's not something bad that needs to be rejected or left aside or risen above. It is good. And this is another refrain that keeps continuing throughout the opening chapters of Genesis. God saw that it was good. Now, the fact that God deliberately created the universe implies that he did it for a reason. Okay, when we do something deliberately, we do it because we have a specific purpose in mind. Now, what is that purpose? Well, one of the things that we see in Genesis is that as soon as God creates human beings, he immediately enters into relationship with them. Okay? He speaks to them. He walks with them in the Garden of Eden. So he's not just a God who creates us and then doesn't care about us and just abandons us. He's a God who has created us for a reason. And that reason has to do with us entering into some kind of personal relationship with him. So in point number 295 of the Catechism, it says creation is not the product of any necessity nor of blind fate or chance. It proceeds from God's free will. He wanted to make his creatures share in his being, wisdom and goodness. Okay, so God created us for himself to get to know him. The other thing that the Catechism reminds us of is that God created the world in order to manifest his glory. Okay, so it quotes from St. Bonaventure, who explains that God created all things not to increase his glory, but to show it forth and to communicate it. So we might hear that and sort of think, oh gosh, God's a bit egotistical. (laughs) Like I'm going to create the world so that everyone can see how amazing I am. Okay, now if God were not the fullness of all goodness and truth and beauty and love, then yeah, maybe that would have been an act of egotism. Okay, because when we say that someone's being egotistical, okay, or what we're saying is that they are overestimating their own worth, okay? They think that they're better than they are. But when it comes to God, it is impossible for God to overestimate how wonderful and amazing he is. Okay, He is the fullness of all perfection. Therefore, for him to share that with us isn't an act of egotism. It's an act of pure love and goodness. God did not have to create us. For him to create the world in order to display his glory and to invite us to share in it, that is an act of indescribable goodness and generosity. Yeah, He didn't have to do that. So these are the Christian answers to those questions of where did we come from? Okay, why are we here? And also, where are we going? Okay, if our purpose is to share in God's goodness and love and beauty, obviously we're not there yet, right? Like I don't experience perfect happiness and joy and beauty in this life, but knowing that that's what I'm made for orients me in a particular direction. It says, this is where you're going. This is what you are made for. Okay. And we've touched on this in earlier episodes, but just to quickly return to it, we know that this is true not just because it's in the Bible or in the Catechism, but because we have that indescribable and transcendent longing for truth, goodness, and beauty written on our souls. So as Christians, the word that we use to describe that final and complete union with truth, goodness, and beauty is heaven. So, when we consider creation from a Christian perspective, we don't just learn a scientific account of where we came from, okay? We learn who made us, why he put us here, and what our goal is, okay? Where we are going. We are headed and made for communion with him in heaven. Okay, so we've talked about who made the universe and why. And the next question is, what did God make? Now, that might seem like a pretty obvious question, like, um, everything. <laughs> okay. But it's worth breaking it down. Now, our first instinct might be to jump to the material world. Okay. He made the plants and animals and trees, etc. But before we get to the material world, we have to talk about the spiritual world. God didn't just make material beings. He also made spiritual beings, beings of pure spirit. And we call these angels. Now, you might hear the word angel and think of like, you know, a a daggy painting of a fat baby with little wings. You might sort of think, oh, come on, Caitlin, like as if people believe in that stuff anymore. Okay, when we say angels, we're not talking about fat flying babies. Okay, we're talking about beings of pure spirit. In other words, an intellect and a will that doesn't have a physical body. Now, to me, it makes perfect sense that God would make beings of pure spirit because why not? You know, like he's an infinite God who can do whatever he wants. I mean, God is a being of pure spirit. So it makes sense to me that his created world also includes created beings of pure spirit. Now, one important point to make is that the word angel describes the office of these beings. It's kind of like their job title. It doesn't tell us what they are. So St. Augustine writes that, Angel is the name of their office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. So when we say that these beings are angels, we're saying that they are the servants and messengers of God. So we see this throughout the Old and New Testament, instances where angels appear to people to deliver messages from God. Now, some of these angels are what we call fallen angels. Okay, And another word that we use is devils. Again, we don't mean like an angry red man with horns and hooves and, you know, a pitchfork. Okay, grab your torch and pitchfork. Doesn't that bother you? Sorry, (laughs) I can't say that word without thinking of Shrek. Okay, so that's not what we mean when we say the devil. What we mean is beings of the same nature as the angels, but they have rejected God in the same way that we can reject God. They said no and they are cut off from communion with God. And the term that we use to describe that is that we say that they are in hell. Pop quiz, here's a quick question for you. Could a devil ever change his mind and say, actually, I don't want to be a devil anymore. I want to go back to heaven and say sorry to God and then go to heaven. The answer to that is a hard no. Nope. No, no, never. Nope. Nine. <laughs> Not going to happen. Okay. Now, why is that? It's not because God is some kind of petty brat, right, who invited a bunch of people to his birthday party and then some of them didn't want to come. And now he's like, well, too bad. OK, you said that you didn't want to come to my party and now you're uninvited and I don't care if you change your mind. No, that is not why devils could never go to heaven and could never change their minds. OK, let's think of it this way. As a human being, I live in a time bound world. And what that means is that I experience things sequentially and I gain knowledge sequentially. So I'm not born with all of the knowledge that I will have when I die. Okay, and that's why you don't have one year olds reading Steinbeck. Right. And it would be weird for someone to be a fan of Bob Dylan before they were about 40. Okay, because we mature over time and we gain knowledge over time. Now, ultimately, There is really only one question that God is asking us that we will have to answer at the end of our lives. And that question is Do you choose me or not? Okay, do you accept me as your God or not? Now, we will give a definitive answer to that question at the end of our lives, and it's also a question that the angels had to answer. But because I live in this time bound world, I don't give that answer in one fell swoop, okay? my answer to that question kind of accumulates over time. So what do I mean? I mean that every day God is asking me that question in a thousand little ways. Okay, so today it might be, you know, are you going to have a seventh piece of chocolate cake? Or are you gonna help your mum with the dishes? Or will you tell that white lie? And each time I say yes or no to God, I'm sort of slowly building up what will eventually be my ultimate answer to him at the end of my life. But each of those yeses and nos along the way are kind of reversible to some extent, right? Like I can say yes to God today and no to him tomorrow and vice versa. Or if I make a really big mistake and I say a big no, I can go to confession, okay, and then start again. As well as this, my knowledge and understanding of God and of that question he's asking me grows and matures and changes over time. So for instance, perhaps when you were a little kid, if you went to church on Sundays, maybe you found church really boring, okay, and you did not get who God was or, you know, you didn't have a personal relationship with him. And if someone had asked you, you know, if you want to spend eternity with God, you might have been like, I don't know, he seems like a kind of boring guy. (laughs) Okay, and then as you get older, you start to appreciate what the mass is and what the Eucharist is and who God is and you get to know him. And then over time, that relationship with him deepens, okay, and you get to a point where you would say an emphatic yes to him. And the same goes for your understanding of what it means to say yes or no to God what what sin actually is. So, you know, maybe as a little kid, your understanding of sin was basically like, oh, if I do something naughty, mum and dad get me in trouble, or they say that it's a sin, or they say that it's bad, and we don't really have a very mature understanding of what that means. Whereas when we're older, we understand that when I sin, I'm actually hurting this this God whom I love and am in a personal relationship with. So that growth in knowledge and experience and understanding of God That is shaped over time and it will guide my ultimate response to that question that God will ask me at the end of my life. Do you choose me or not? And this is why it can be kind of dangerous to have the attitude of like, you know, oh, I guess I'll just do whatever I want during this life. And then, of course, when I get to my deathbed, like, of course, I'll say yes to God. Well, it kind of doesn't work like that because in the same way that, you know, if someone is addicted to something and they say, oh, I'm just going to keep drinking alcohol. But, you know, when it comes to the crunch, when I really need to say no, then I'll give it up because you've already built up a disposition towards something and it can be really hard in the final moment, no matter how urgent or or necessary it is that you make a particular decision to just do a complete 180 when you've lived your whole life living in a certain way. Now, that isn't to say that if you have lived in a certain way your whole life that you can't say yes to God. Of course. People have, you know, deathbed, beautiful deathbed conversions, okay? It totally happens, and it's totally a thing, but it's not something that we can sort of rely on, and we can't ignore the fact that the way that we live is shaping a certain response or disposition towards God. Now, angels, because they are pure spirit, do not exist within the material world, okay, so they don't experience things sequentially. They don't and cannot gain new knowledge that they didn't have before. So what that means is that at the moment of their creation, angels already had all of the knowledge that they could possibly need to answer that question, okay. They knew who God was, what he was asking of them, and what the consequences of saying no to him were, which is why the answer that they gave to God was completely definitive. So that's why we say that angels and devils couldn't change their minds and suddenly reverse their decisions. Okay, so that's the spiritual world. Now, what else did God create? Well, obviously, he created the visible world, right? Or the material world. So, you know, the trees and the fishes and the sky and the sea and the animals and humans. Okay. Now, a couple of points to make about the material world. One, we've already said this earlier in the episode, is that it is good, now, we've talked about goodness a lot in, I think it was episode three. Okay, so we won't go too far into that now. But just one thing that I wanted to mention is that if you want to meditate or pray about or think more about the goodness of the natural world and of God's creation, I would recommend reading two different poems. If I mean, if you're into poetry, if that's your thing, or even if you're not, to be honest, because I just firmly believe that Jared Manley Hopkins is the greatest poet and he would convert anyone to poetry because he's amazing. But yeah, there are these two poems by Jared Manley Hopkins, And the first one is called As Kingfishers Catch Fire, and the second one is called God's grandeur. They are just such beautiful poems, and they're basically all about how everything that exists simply by existing fulfills its purpose and has a kind of perfection because it's doing exactly what God made it for. So a bird flapping its wings, or a caterpillar crawling along the ground, or... A leaf falling from a tree is giving glory to God because it's doing exactly what God created it for. So, okay, God made the world and the world is good. Another point that we need to make is that God made things to be interdependent. So what that means is that things rely on one another. So the catechism puts this quite poetically in point number 340, God wills the interdependence of creatures, the sun and the moon, the cedar and the little flower, the eagle and the sparrow. The spectacle of their countless diversities and inequalities tells us that no creature is self-sufficient. Creatures exist only in dependence on each other, to complete each other in the service of each other. That is such a beautiful idea and so profound and so worth kind of sitting with. The idea that every created thing relies on other created stuff. There is nothing that is completely self-sufficient. Now, it's really important that the catechism has reminded us that we are interdependent because the next point that it goes on to make is that human beings are the pinnacle of creation. And as such, the created world was made for us, okay, for humankind. Now, that might sound a little bit controversial in the 21st century because it might sound like we're saying, oh, well, human beings are the boss and the earth belongs to us, which means we can do whatever we want with it. But that is not what the Catholic Church is saying. So let's unpack it. What do we mean when we say that human beings are the pinnacle of creation? So we kind of touched on this in, I think it was the last episode, where we talked about how human beings have an intellect and a will. And what this means is that the way that we think isn't just more complex, okay, than other animals, The way that we think is not just different in degree or complexity, but in type. Okay. The way that we think is completely different to the way that any other animal thinks. Okay. And we also have a will. Okay. We have the capacity to say yes or no to things based on what our intellect perceives. Okay. And we've, again, covered this in a previous episode. So this is an area of thinking called philosophical anthropology, okay, and it's concerned with these questions of what makes us human and what separates us from other animals. So there's actually a really good book that you might like to read. It's called Philosophical Anthropology, an Introduction, and it's by Francesco Russo and José Ángel Lombo. I'm assuming that this person is Spanish, and if not, then I apologize for pronouncing your name with a Spanish accent. So this book is great because it's very clear and concise and kind of summarizes some of these main ideas of, of what separates us from other animals. So you might want to look into that if you want to think more about it. So to kind of summarize, basically, the Catholic Church teaches that human beings exist on a, a kind of another level to other created beings. And this is something that that Genesis kind of reveals. Through the course of the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we get this image of the different sort of levels of creation from the most fundamental aspects of life to the most complex, which is the human person. So this is why we say that humankind is the pinnacle of creation and that the world was created for man. Now, what do we mean when we say that the world was created for man? Do we mean that It was just given to us as a free gift and God said, yeah, do whatever you want with it. No, that is not what that means. So point number 358 in the Catechism says something really important. It says, God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and to offer all creation back to him. So this calls to mind the parable from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, in which a man is going on a journey and he summons his servants and basically gives his wealth to them. And is like, there you go. You look after it. Off I trot. okay." And then when the master comes back, his servants bring his wealth to him and they say, look, here's what you gave me. And here are the good things I've done with it. And then there's one servant who just buried it in the ground and then he gets in massive trouble. Okay, So it's kind of like us. God has given us the earth not just to be like, yeah, go and fritter it away. He wants us to look after it and do beautiful, good things with it and then to give it back to him as an offering. So, you know, excuse me while I become a hippie for a moment, but we can really think about this and pray about this, that at the end of my life, God is going to ask me, how did you treat the world around you? How did you treat the gifts that I gave you? Did you use them well or not? And of course, we have to find a balance with these things. You know, it doesn't mean that we go overboard and start treating animals like they're humans, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to look after the environment. So these are some of the ideas that um, Pope Francis explored in his encyclical Laudato Si'. So you might want to read that if you want to think more about it. So this is where we return to this idea that we're part of an interdependent network of created beings. That as much as we receive so many good things from the earth, we're also called to take care of that earth and to treat it well. And this doesn't mean that we all have to be vegan, although you can be if you want to, but it does mean that we shouldn't treat animals with cruelty or the earth with a kind of dismissive dominance. Okay, now a couple of other quick points about creation before we wrap up. The first is that as human beings, we were created body and soul. And this is so important to remember. In the same way that we're not just physical beings, okay, we're not just animated bodies, we're also not purely spiritual beings, okay? We're not angels. We are profoundly both in a way that no other created thing is. So angels are pure spirit, okay? And other animals have bodies, but they don't have a spiritual soul, okay? They don't have an intellect and a will. Human beings have this unique interweaving of both of those things. And it can be really easy for us to slip into emphasizing one of those things over the other. So for instance, we might fall into something that we call dualism, okay? Which is this idea that basically the true person, my true self, is my soul. Okay. My spirit and my body just happens to be the vessel that it's trapped in. Okay. Kind of like, you know, it's the car that I'm driving, but the true person is the soul. Okay. We're not angels trapped in human bodies. Okay. Our body and our soul are completely intertwined and we see the importance of the body in the kind of pain that we feel when someone talks about their own body or their physical appearance in a really negative way. So think of it this way. Imagine I went out and bought a really ugly car, okay? And then I drove it over to my friend's house and I'm like, hey, come check out how ugly my new car is. And then my friend comes out and she's like, wow, yeah, that is a really ugly car. And then we all have a good laugh over how ugly my car is. Okay, that's not a problem. And I'm not insulted by that. And my friend isn't upset by it because we both know that the car isn't who I am, okay? It's just the vehicle that I happen to be driving. But if I came to my friend's house and started saying, oh, I'm so ugly. I'm so fat. I'm so gross. My friend would immediately start saying, hey, no, stop that. Don't talk about yourself like that. You're beautiful. You're amazing. And that's because we recognize that that, that's you. When you abuse your body verbally like that, you're abusing yourself. That's not okay. You don't talk about yourself like that. And then conversely, think about if you met someone who was really physically beautiful, but they had quite a sort of nasty or cruel personality. You might hesitate to describe that person as beautiful when you talk about them. Okay, You're not going to instinctively say, oh, she's such a beautiful person. You might say, oh, yeah, she's pretty, but there's something missing from there, okay, because it's not just about the body. Who she is is also bound up with her spirit. So the body and the soul are intimately entwined and equally important. Okay, now the final point that the Catechism makes in this section is that God created us man and woman. Now, obviously, this is a really big topic, okay? And it's not something that I can do justice to in, like, a minute, okay? So I actually would love to do a full episode on this some other time. But all I'm going to do for now is read this quote from the Catechism, okay? This is point number 369. It says, Man and woman have been created in perfect equality as human persons. In their respective beings as man and woman. Being man or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. Man and woman possess an inalienable dignity. So there's this other quote from Edith Stein, which kind of summarizes this idea. She says, I am convinced that the species humanity embraces the double species man and woman, That the essence of the complete human being is characterized by this duality. So all of this is basically to say that masculinity and femininity are both profoundly equal and good things that are willed by God. Okay, and these ideas of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman as well as what it is to be a human being of both body and soul, okay, these ideas sit right at the heart of what we call the theology of the body. So this is something that Pope St. John Paul II wrote about extensively. So if you want to read more about this, you might read a book that Pope John Paul II wrote called Love and Responsibility. There's another called Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. You might also look at the work of Christopher West, okay, who has done so much work on the theology of the body. He has a YouTube channel. He's got a podcast called the Ask Christopher West podcast. He has books about the theology of the body. Okay, that's a fantastic resource to go to. And actually, the Theology of the Body Institute have just started a YouTube series that looks at the entire catechism of the Catholic Church through the lens of the theology of the body. So if you're listening to this series, that might actually be a really good complementary resource that you could dip into. But anyway, as I said, I want to go into this more in, in a whole episode some other time. So that's all I'm going to say about it for now. So I'm going to leave it there for this episode. Next episode, we're going to talk about original sin, okay, and the fall of man. So that'll be lots of fun, okay. But that's it from me for this episode, and I'll see you next time. Bye!